0: We're in the midst of a series of messages talking about worldview, entitled, Own the Vision. We all have a worldview. Everyone looks at life through a particular lens. It's how we understand life. It's how we interpret life. It's how we live our lives. Everyone has a worldview. And as Christ followers, we believe that that our worldview ought to come through Scripture, through the Bible. We understand that there is a God, that He is an awesome God, He is a great God, He is a good God. He is a transcendent God, but He is also an immanent God, and that God has revealed Himself to us, both in nature and in His Word. And so we are striving to understand the world through a biblical worldview. One of the things I want to challenge you to do over the coming weeks is as you're reading the paper, as you are looking at the internet, as you are watching the news online, to do so, trying to look at different worldviews. Look at the headlines, look at the stories that are put before you, and try to look at it from a biblical worldview, yes, but look at it from what worldview is being presented to you. For instance, this last week there were multiple stories that caught my attention that come from a different worldview. This last week it was reported that Duke University student government denied Young Life, a Christian organization on campus, the student government of Duke denied Young Life official status on campus because of their policies on the LGBTQ plus community. Now hear me, Young Life doesn't prohibit anybody from any background participating in Young Life, but it does have a disclaimer that says if you're going to be a leader in Young Life, you must adhere to the teachings of scripture, and because of that, the Duke University student government said, you guys are bigoted and you cannot be on our campus. Just one example. This last week it was reported that Merriam-Webster, some of you that are young don't know what Miriam webster is, those of us that are a little older know what Merriam-Webster is. It's a dictionary. It's a book filled with words and tells you what the definition is. Merriam-Webster this week officially made they the singular, genderless, non-binary pronoun. You remember that we talked about this a few weeks ago, that there are certain people that don't want to be recognized as he or she anymore, that they want to be referred to as they, whether they are a singular person or multiple people. And so, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary this week put they in the dictionary as a singular pronoun. I know, it doesn't make sense, but it's a worldview. You may have seen reported this week that in Indiana, 2,246 fetal remains were found in the home of a former abortion doctor by the name of Dr. Ulrich Klopfer. As his family was cleaning out his belongings, they found medically preserved fetal remains of 2,200 human beings. As you watch the news, do so from a biblical worldview. As you see the news that is presented to you, understand that it is coming through a lens. It is coming through a filter. It is coming through a worldview. I saw this week that in Britain, 89% of young people in Britain, 16 to 29, said that life has no meaning. Nine out of 10 British young people, 16 to 29, say life as we know it has no meaning. 55% of those that are British, 60 plus, say life has no meaning. That's a sad way to look through life. That's a sad way to go through life, saying this life has no meaning. Yet, it is a worldview. Because when you take God out of your worldview, all that is left is what is natural. And all that is left that is natural leads to the conclusion, this life has no meaning. When you look at the news, do so from a biblical worldview. Let me encourage you, Bo mentioned it earlier, Uh, Jared Belton, one of our young adults. Jared, would you do me a favor? Just come down here real quick. I just want to introduce them to you guys. Just come on down real quick. Jared is one of our seminary students. He is finishing up his seminary degree, and he's getting his degree in Christian apologetics. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, Christian apologetics does not mean learning how to apologize for being a Christian. It means quite the opposite. It means learning how to defend your faith. Um, the Bible teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 3 to be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. And it is an opportunity for us to learn what other biblical or what other worldviews are and then how we can present a biblical worldview. And so starting on October the 7th, our 2nd, I just want you guys to see Jared. He's coming way down from the balcony. Here he comes. He's going to wear me out. Come here, Jared. I didn't tell him I was doing this, by the way. I just, I just want you to put a face to a name. I really appreciate Jared. He, he reached out to me and he said, hey, pastor, I, I, I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion of my studies and I, there's an opportunity for me to teach a practicum on worldviews and how we can approach life from a biblical worldview. Is there a possibility we could do that in the church? And I, and I said, hold on, let me pray about it for a minute. Yes, okay. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and it fits perfectly within our our um, sermon series. And so Jared is going to help you. Uh, if you remember our first uh, lesson in this series, we talked about the different worldviews: pantheism, atheism, um, all, all of the different isms, right? And you guys, many of you reached out and said, "Pastor, I didn't get all that. Can you give it to me in some kind of written form?" I'm going to do you one better. He's going to teach it to you on a week by week basis. So he's going to take a view of a worldview and then he's going to help us to understand how we can approach that worldview from a biblical standpoint. So, if you're not doing anything on Wednesday nights, even if you are doing on some, something else on Wednesday nights. Stop doing it and come do this, all right? So if you're in my Acts study on Wednesday nights, I give you 100% permission, to skip out on my Acts study and go learn about this on Wednesday nights starting October the 2nd for seven weeks, all right? Y'all thank Jared for coming up, buddy. I love you, appreciate you, man. Thank you. <laughs> a true biblical Christian worldview begins with the understanding that there is a God and that that God is great and that God is Good. We know this because God has revealed Himself to us. We know God because He's made Himself known. He's made Himself known as a transcendent God who is above His creation. But He's also made Himself known as an imminent God, a personal God that we can come to know. But how has He done so? How has God revealed Himself to us? He's done it in creation. We saw this in, in Psalm 8 last week. He's done it in his creation, but that's what's known as general revelation. It's a revelation that lets everybody generally know that there is a being who is bigger than us, who is transcendent above us. He makes himself known in nature, but he also makes himself known because he has placed it within the human heart to know that he exists. Let me give you two verses of Scripture or two passages of Scripture. You might want to jot these down. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Say the heavens are to telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words; their voice is not heard. Psalm 19:1 through 3 just simply says that the creation, without the use of words, proclaims there is a God. But hear what Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 21 says. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile to their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. God not only reveals himself in nature, he reveals himself by putting something inside of man that cries out to know him. And men have to suppress that in order to get away from the truth that God exists. And it says that as we suppress that, we are led away by our own foolish speculations. God has revealed himself in a general way to all mankind through creation and through this innate desire to know him. But general revelation is not sufficient for salvation. General revelation is not enough to save anyone. The passage we just read in Romans chapter 1 says general salvation is good so that no man can stand before God with excuse. No one can stand before him and go, I didn't know you existed. Everyone is without excuse because it is evident that God exists. So general revelation is not sufficient for salvation. It is only sufficient for condemnation, however, God didn't stop with general revelation. He did not just stop by the creation and this innate desire to know Him. Instead, God revealed Himself in a more specific way, namely through words. God has spoken to man. He has spoken to us in dreams and in visions, in past times. He has spoken through angelic visitors who are His messengers. He has spoken through theophanies or presentations of God in the flesh. He has spoken to us through prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the, and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in the last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. God has spoken to us in past times, in dreams. He spoke to some in visions. He spoke through prophets. But when he sent Jesus Christ, he sent God in the flesh. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. God has spoken to us not only in general revelation, God has spoken to us in specific revelation through his word and through Jesus Christ. We know what God is like because we know what Jesus is like. But the question comes how do we know what Jesus is like? because none of us were there when Jesus was alive. None of us were here in first-century Palestine when Jesus was walking and ministering and loving and dying and raising again. None of us were here to see it. So, how can we know that is true? So, God has given us a trustworthy accounting of His life and His ministry, and we have that where? In the Bible, in His Word, the Scriptures. In fact, not only is the New Testament a story of Jesus and a telling of Jesus. The whole book is a story of Jesus. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all an accounting of who Jesus Christ is. You probably learned a little song when you were young. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. I know this to be true. Why do I know this to be true? Because the Bible tells me it is true. And a true biblical worldview begins with the conviction that God is, that he is great, that he is good, and that he has revealed himself to us not only through creation, but he has spoken to us through the word, and he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. I can trust the Bible because God is the author of the Bible. God is true. He cannot lie. He does not change. He wrote the Bible. Therefore, the Bible must be true. And the Bible, therefore, has to be the standard by which we test all truth claims. It must be the lens by which we understand and filter all of life. And the Bible, rightly understood, should be the foundation and final authority for everything that we hold to be true but a legitimate question should be popping up in our minds. I promise you it is in the skeptic's mind. And a legitimate question should be right now, with all the sacred texts of religion in the world, all claiming some form of truth, how can we be certain that the Bible is actually the Word of God, and how can we be certain that the Bible is actually true in all that it teaches? Because if I'm claiming that I can know who God is through the Bible— if I'm claiming that I can know who Jesus Christ is through the Bible, then the legitimate question is, how do I know if I can trust the Bible? How do you know if the Bible is true? How do you know if the Bible is trustworthy? One of the main premises of the religious relativism argument is that all holy books are basically the same, because they've all basically are equal. They all lead people ultimately to the same place. They may take different paths, but all religious books, according to relativism, just kind of lead to the same place. It doesn't matter if you read the Bible or the Quran, or you read the Book of Mormon or the sacred texts of Hinduism or the sacred texts of Buddhism. Ultimately, they're all the same. They're all equal. And none of them can claim absolute truth. But a biblical worldview says that the Bible does claim absolute truth. In the Bible, it says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way but this way. That's either true or it's not. So how do I know that the Bible is the Word of God? It is truth without any mixture of error. Because today, a skeptic is going to say, if you hold to that belief that the Bible is true, that it's absolute truth without any mixture of error— if you hold to that, then a skeptic today is going to call you arrogant, ignorant, and a sentimental fool. So let me ask you why do you believe the Bible is true and trustworthy? Because if you present yourself as a Christ follower who lives through the lens of a biblical worldview and you say, everything that I believe to be true, I see through the lens of Scripture, it is a legitimate question for somebody to ask you, why? Why do you believe the Bible is true? Why do you believe it is authoritative? And that legitimate question deserves a legitimate answer. It deserves an answer. And I wonder how many of us could give an articulate answer to the question, why do you believe the Bible is true and trustworthy? Now, some of us might articulate it this way, well, I believe it because that's how I was raised. That, that might be our response. Well, you know, I, I don't know all the details, but I know that my parents taught me this way and their parents taught them that way and their parents taught them that way, and so it's just how I was raised, so that's why I believe it's true. You realize that someone that was raised in a different culture with a different religious tradition, is going to say the same thing. I was raised in a Hindu culture, and so my parents practiced that, and their parents practiced that, and so it's not an adequate, articulate answer to the question, why do you believe the Bible is true? Some might say, well, I believe the Bible is true because I'm a Baptist, and I've got a preacher who's somewhat convincing, and he tells me I can trust it. Okay, I appreciate that but I I use this with my men's group on Friday morning. If you go to your doctor and your doctor says you're sick, you need to take this medicine, and you say, why should I take that medicine? And your doctor says, well, I don't know, but let me call my college professor. I'll ask him why you should take that medicine. It doesn't exude a whole lot of confidence in what your doctor tells you. But if that doctor tells you, no, you take this medicine because I know that you are sick in this way and this medicine will help you in this way, you understand a little bit more. So, an articulate answer isn't because my pastor said i can an articulate answer isn't even well it works for me it works for me it, that may very well be true but a buddhist could make the same argument a scientologist could make the same argument they may be wrong but for them it works so how do you answer the question? Are you prepared to answer the question, why do you believe the Bible is true and trustworthy? Why do you have confidence in the Bible? This morning from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, I want to give you five reasons why you can have confidence in the Bible. Five reasons why we can have confidence in the Bible, and I pray that when you leave today, if somebody ever asks you, why do you believe the Bible is true, you will have a more uh, ready answer. You will be able to answer it more articulately than you ever have before. If you're physically able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16 this morning. Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Holy Spirit, and he writes, "'For we did not follow cleverly devised tales "'when we made known to you the power "'and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. "'For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, "'such an utterance as this was made to him "'by the majestic glory, "'this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and trust that your word is true. And Father, I praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in a general way through your creation and in the longing that is within us. But Father, we praise you even more that you didn't stop revealing yourself there because that was only worthy of condemnation. But Father, you have spoken to us You have revealed yourself to us through your words, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the authoritative Word of God. Lord, help us to leave having confidence in your Word that we are standing and living on truth because of the Word of God. Lord, help us this this time. Just let your Holy Spirit let us see truth from your Word and embrace it and change our lives accordingly. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So everybody know where we're headed. My goal over the next 25 minutes or so is to help us articulate five reasons why we can have confidence in the Word of God, why we can say, I believe it is true, it is trustworthy, and we find them all in these verses 16 through 21. The context of 2 Peter is simply this. Peter the apostle is writing to the church and he is encouraging them to take a stand against false prophets and false teachers that were all over the place in this period of time. There are people that are trying to come into the church and pull people away from the truth of the gospel. There are people that are speaking into Christians' lives and trying to get them to look at the world from a different worldview, and he is warning them that they are coming, and he wants to help them to avoid false teachings. And the way you learn how to avoid false teaching isn't to study the false teaching. The way you learn how to avoid false teaching is to study truth. And so, in the first 15 verses, his emphasis is on, let me teach you truth. You already have the truth. The truth has been revealed to you. And so, he talks to them about how to overcome false teaching. And in verses 1 through 15, he says, first step is to know about your salvation. We didn't read those verses, but that's a context leading into verse 16, is understand what salvation is, where it came from. It's not what you've done to earn it. It's not what you do to keep it. It's what God has done on your behalf. Know about salvation. Then in verses 16 through 21, he says, secondly, you need to know about scripture. You need to know the truth about your salvation. Then you need to know the truth about scripture. What is it? Then thirdly, in chapter three, he says, you need to know about sanctification, the process by which you become more like Christ. What I want us to focus on are these verses, verses 16 through 21, where he says, you need to know the truth about Scripture. Five reasons why we can have confidence in the Bible. I'm going to give them all to you right now, and then we'll back up and unpack them. Number one, the Bible is historical, not mythical in nature. The Bible is historical, not mythical in nature. Number two, the Bible is a compilation of eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts. Number three, the Bible explains the supernatural. We're going to come back to them. You don't have to write them all down. We'll be, they'll be back up there. Number four, the records, the Bible records the fulfillment of specific prophecies. And number five, the Bible was inspired by God. All right? So let's back up and we'll go through those again. First reason I can have confidence in the Bible is that the Bible is historical, not mythical in nature. Verse 16, Peter writes, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The implication that Peter is making is that the Bible is not a collection of myths, but instead the Bible is a collection of reliable historical documents. He's saying the Bible isn't like the Greek mythologies that you're so familiar with. The Bible isn't like the Gilgamesh epic. It's not based in reality. They are just these myths and made-up things There's no doubt that Peter, at this point, is writing in response to an accusation that's been made against the Bible. And that accusation was simply that it was no different than any other religious mythology or religious sacred text, that it was just a bunch of made-up stuff by human beings to soothe their own consciousness. When he calls it, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. The word cleverly devised there, that phrase simply means subtly concocted, The inference is an intent to deceive. He said, Myths are intended to deceive you. They're subtle, but they're intended to deceive. And he says, I didn't write anything intending to deceive you. I didn't write these cleverly devised tales. The word tale there is the word we get our word myth from. He said, When I wrote to you, when the other uh, writers of the scriptures wrote to you, they weren't these mythical stories about the gods and about creation. No. These were the truths. They're not myths. They are historical facts. Peter's firm assertion is that the Bible isn't a collection of myths. It is historical documentation. Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts in the New Testament, began his letter, the Gospel of Luke, this way. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things which have been taught. Luke says, look, what I did was I wanted you to know the truth about what historically has happened, and so what I didn't see as an eyewitness, I went back and I researched it. And I studied it. And now I've given you a consecutive order of what has happened. What I'm writing down for you isn't a myth that somebody's made up. It's history that I can go back and look at. I can go back and study. And there are some who question the historical veracity or the historical accuracy of the Bible. And their primary objection is that it has been written by men. They will say, why do you believe the Bible? It was just another book written by men men. And therefore, since the Bible's written by men, we can't trust what is in it. There's two problems with that. There's probably multiple problems. I'm only going to mention two. Number one, the Bible claims to not only be written by men, but written by men who are inspired by God. The Bible claims to be written by God. Thus says the Lord over and over and over again. That's number one. But number two, just from a logical standpoint, carry their argument out to its full completion. I can't trust the Bible, you can't trust the Bible because it's written by men. If that's the fact, then I can't trust my math book, my science book, my history book, my law book. I can't trust any book. Why? Because they've been written by men. Those of you that are still in school, go to your American history class tomorrow, and I want you to tell your teacher or your professor, I don't believe the Civil War happened. And they're going to say, well, why don't you believe the Civil War happened? And your answer should be, well, because I read about it in this history book, but that history book was written by a man, and that man is flawed, therefore I can't believe that the Civil War ever happened. How's that going to fly? It's a bad argument. The question isn't, was it written by men? The question is, is the information that is in it accurate? Is what the book teaches true and reliable? And we understand that the Civil War took place not just because we have it recorded in books, but because what man records in books is consistent with the evidence outside of those books that it actually happened. We can verify it. Does that make sense? The Bible is a reliable historical account. Not just because it's recorded in the Bible, but because it is historical, and we can have someone corroborate what happened. Love a preacher, teacher, and apologist by the name of Voddie Bacham, V-O-O-D-I-E-B-A-U-C-H-A-M, Vodi Bacham. If you haven't ever heard him, listen to him preach or teach, look him up, Google him, you'll thank me later. Voddie is an outstanding apologist. And he helps us to understand this concept of the Bible is a collection of historical documents in a way that I can't even articulate very well. And this argument that we can't trust it because it's been written by men, he gives us proofs why we can trust the historicity of the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of them. First, the Bible is a collection of varied yet consistent sources. The Bible was written in three different languages on three different continents, by over 40 different, varied authors over a period of 1,600 years, and yet it tells one seamless story from beginning to end, never contradicting itself, always telling one story. Secondly, there is an abundance of early copies of the biblical text One of the arguments that people say that we can't trust the Bible is we don't have the original letters. When Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians, we don't have that letter. This letter that we're reading this morning, 2 Peter, we don't have the actual letter. And so they say, because you don't have the actual letter, you can't trust what the Bible teaches you. But we do have 6,000 manuscripts or partial manuscripts of the Bible dating back to 25 years from the time that it was actually happening. You say, wait a minute, you're saying we've got 6,000 copies of the Bible that weren't the original, but they're 6,000 and they were written 25 years after the events? That doesn't seem all that impressive. But compare that with the rest of the works of antiquity. They would say we can't trust it because we don't have the originals and we don't have enough copies and because it was written so far away, okay, fine, great. Aristotle. Aristotle's writings, we have 49 fragments of Aristotle's writings. The earliest one dates to 1,400 years after Aristotle. I don't hear anybody standing up in our colleges going, we can't trust what Aristotle says because we don't have enough copies of it, and it was written too far after he wrote it. Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have 10 fragments written 950 years after the fact. The closest one in antiquity is Homer's Iliad. 643 fragments written 500 years after the fact. There's no comparison. The authenticity of the New Testament, the authenticity of the Bible, 6,000 fragments, two decades after they were written, the others don't even compare. It's not even a fair fight. It's like a basset hound running in the Kentucky Derby. It is not a fair fight. And yet nobody argues that we can't trust these other books, but then when we take to the Bible and they go, well, we can't trust that one, it is the most verifiable historical document that we have. Third, the Bible is corroborated by archaeological evidence. Every now and then we'll read a story that somebody found something in the Middle East or they undug something and it'll have a a name on it. Not one time has any of those ever gone against Scripture. As a matter of fact, when they find them time and time and time again, they prove out something that the Bible records. They're corroborated by archaeological evidence. I've got to keep moving along. Number one reason I can have confidence in the Bible It is historical in nature, not mythological in nature. It is recorded history. Second reason. These get faster as we go through them. I know you're stressed over it. Reason number two the Bible is a compilation of eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts. Notice what Peter says as he continues verse 16. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is reiterating the fact that he's not talking about myths. He's not even talking about secondhand information. Peter says, what I'm telling you, I saw it with my own two eyes. I'm not telling you what somebody else told me. I'm telling you what I saw. This was a first-hand eyewitness account. And as I understand it, there's nothing more powerful in a trial than an eyewitness. Especially if that eyewitness can be corroborated by another eyewitness that says the exact same thing. Listen to how the Apostle John phrased the first few lines of his letter, 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, Jesus, and the life was manifested, and we have seen him and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you so that you might have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John went to great lengths to say, This isn't something I haven't seen. I'm an eyewitness. I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. What I'm passing on to you is first hand eyewitness. A murder mystery is not much of a mystery if several eyewitnesses step up and say, Blaze did it. If 10 people walk up and say, We saw that guy with the knife in the library, not much of a mystery, is it? (laughs) The Bible is an eyewitness account. But even more than that, it's an eyewitness account that's corroborated by other eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Peter, or Paul is talking to the church about the resurrection. And he said, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the other 12, and then he appeared to 500 other brethren, most of which are still alive. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask the 12 apostles. You don't believe them, there's 500 other people. Go ask them. They all saw it. And if it wasn't true, those 500 people would be screaming at the top of their lungs that I'm a liar. The Bible is a trustworthy collection of historical documents that are eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts. Contrast that with other sacred writings such as the Book of Mormon or the Koran, which were supposedly revealed to an individual in private that no one was privy to. Now, that in and of itself doesn't negate the possibility that Joseph Smith or the Prophet Muhammad are telling the truth, but the lack of corroborating eyewitnesses does not help the testimony of truth. Reason number three, we can have confidence. It's Historical, not mythical in nature. It is a collection of eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts. Number three, the Bible explains the supernatural. The Bible is more than just trustworthy and true because it claims to be more than just a history book. It claims to help us understand the things that we can't understand, it helps us to understand the things that happen outside of the natural, it helps us to understand the miraculous the miracles, things that we don't understand, things that human reason can't understand, things that naturalism can't explain. The Bible helps to explain these, but this is why so many people reject the Bible. Many people would say, okay, I like the teachings of Jesus, but I have to reject the Bible as a whole because I've just got to get rid of the miracles because I don't don't understand them. They don't make sense to me. This is the naturalistic worldview, that everything is physical, nothing is spiritual, and so we just do away with the miracles in the Bible, and we can hold on to the teaching of of Jesus. In verses 17 and 18, Peter Peter gives us an example, an account of a miracle that takes place. The last part of verse 18 says, this happened on the holy mountain. And the instance that Peter is referring to is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on that mountain. And there they began to see his glory. He kind of peeled back his humanity and let the Shekinah glory of God shine out. And they said he was shining like the sun. And on that mountain also uh, Moses and Elijah appeared. And then they heard the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when Peter writes this and he says, I was an eyewitness of this, he quickly moves from the realm of the natural to the realm of the supernatural. But he wasn't the only one to witness something supernatural. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding, a very public thing. Many people saw that take place. Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. Everybody knew he was born blind. One minute he couldn't see, the next minute Jesus healed him he could see. Jesus healed those that were sick of their diseases. He caused the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. Demons were cast out. He walked on water. One time, he multiplied a few fish and some loaves of bread before 10,000 people. On Friday, many people saw him dead and buried. And on Sunday, over 500 people saw him alive and well. The Bible doesn't just show us history, the Bible shows us supernatural. It helps us to understand those things. Reason number four, the Bible records the fulfillment of specific prophecies. These supernatural events are often in fulfillment of something that had been prophesied earlier. Something that the prophets in the Old Testament said would happen are fulfilled Mostly in Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Peter says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. He said the prophet said it. We saw it. If you don't believe me, just look at the evidence. Go look at what the prophet said and then compare him to Jesus Christ. And in this, Peter says, we. We have this prophetic word It's not just him, it's all the writers and all the apostles who wrote the scriptures. Romans chapter 15 verse 8 says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, sold for 30 pieces of silver, mocked at his death, killed between two criminals, crucified, nails drawn into his hands and his feet, Written in Psalm chapter 22 by a man who never had seen or experienced a crucifixion, didn't know what it was. Lots cast for his clothing at his crucifixion, buried in a rich man's grave, resurrected on the third day. All prophesied in the Old Testament, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And some people would say, skeptics would say, well, Jesus knew what the fulfillment, what the prophecy was, so he just fulfilled what he knew the prophecy was. Oh, really? Jesus the infant decided that he would be born in Bethlehem? Jesus the infant decided that he would be born of a virgin? There was a mathematics professor by the name of Peter Stoner who published a book back in 1958 entitled Science Speaks. And Professor Stoner, his goal in writing the book was to apply the science of probability to Scripture. What's the probability that the things that are written in Scripture actually happened? And he did it with multiple things, but the most intriguing to me was he applied the probability of someone fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies in the New Testament. And so he said, what are the odds that someone would fulfill any of the prophecies in the Old Testament? What, what are the odds that one person would fulfill them? And by the way, there's like 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, so what are the odds that one person would fulfill all 300? He said, let's, let's, let's not start there. Let's start small. He said, what are the odds that one person would fulfill eight of the Old Testament prophecies? Just eight, not 300, eight. Just eight. And his calculations came to this. He said the odds that one person could fulfill all, just eight of them was one to ten in the 17th power. That's what that number looks like. I have no idea how big that number is. I know it's big, but I have no idea how big that number is until Dr. Stoner explained it. He says, visualize this. If you had silver dollars two feet high, that many silver dollars would cover the state of Texas. Start to put a little perspective on how big that number is. He said the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament prophecies of who the Messiah is, is like having the state of Texas covered in silver dollars, two feet high, you mark one of them with a black pen, you blindfold a man and tell him to go find the one marked coin, and they go into Texas and they come out with that one coin. He said those are the odds that one person could fulfill eight. Not, a, not 300 of them, eight of them. He said, okay, maybe you don't believe me. What about 16? What if one person fulfilled 16 of them? That's 1 to 10 to the 45th power, which looks like this. That's more zeros. My brain can't handle this. Dr. Stoner helps us out. He says, you take those same coins that you stacked up in Texas and you lay them end to end, they would go to the the sun and 30 times past the sun. That's how big that number is. He says, what are the odds that one person could fulfill 16? That's the odds. He said, well, what, let's, let's get crazy. What if one person fulfilled 47? That's 47. What are the odds of that? It's one to 10, or 1 in 10 to the 157th power, or that. And he couldn't even come up with an explanation of what that looks like. what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say is, how can I trust the Bible? I can trust the Bible because statistically speaking, (laughs) man, I'm not a betting man. I'm betting on Jesus because he is who he claims to be, and the Bible represents him well. It is true, and it is trustworthy. Verse 19, he says, it is so true and trustworthy that you would do well to pay attention to it. You would do well to pay attention to who Jesus is and who the Bible claims he is. As a matter of fact, it is like a light in a very dark place. I believe the Bible describes itself as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I believe the Bible is true and reliable because it is a historical, not mythical document. I believe it is a compilation of eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts. I believe that it explains the supernatural. I believe that it records the fulfillment of specific prophecy. But finally, number five, I believe it because the Bible is inspired by God. Verses 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter says the first thing you need to understand is that the Bible wasn't just written by men. They weren't just writing down anything they wanted to write down. They weren't just writing down mythological ideas or something to sway you. No, they were writing down what God divinely inspired them to write down. They were moved on by the Holy Spirit. That word moved on is the same word to describe a sailboat when the wind catches its sails and pushes it along. He said these people weren't just writing whatever they wanted. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to record what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. The Word of God was breathed into them by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God, not part of it, all of it is inspired by God, breathed by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Over 300 times the Bible says something like this, this is the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, the word of the Lord came to. Men did not just write the Bible, God wrote the Bible, so that he could reveal himself to us. A true biblical worldview begins with a conviction that God exists, and that God is a great God, and that God is a good God. That God is transcendent, but that God is imminent. He has revealed himself to man, both in his creation and in his word. He's he's revealed himself both in a general sense and a specific sense, in creation and through the spoken word. And the ultimate revelation of who God is, is Jesus Christ. How do I know what Jesus Christ is like? Because the Bible records for us who he is and what he's done. And so, as a Christ follower, the Bible should be the standard by which I test all truth claims. The Bible is the lens by which I look at everything in life and say, is this right or not? Because I trust the Bible to be true. Because God is true, God wrote the Bible, therefore the Bible must be true. But a legitimate question of a skeptic would be why do you believe the Bible? Why do you trust it? Why do you think it's true and trustworthy? And I pray that you have an articulate answer. I pray that it's more than, well, that's how I was raised. I pray that it's more than, well, my pastor said I can, and I pray that it's more than it just works for you. I pray that as you look at Scripture, you can have confidence to understand that you believe the Bible is true because it is historical, not mythical. Because it is eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitnesses. Because it helps to explain the things that we cannot explain. Because it is recording the fulfillment of, scripture, of of prophecies, the odds of which are astronomical when you stop and think about it, and because, because it is written by God. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, your word which is truth without a mixture of error. It is inerrant. It is authoritative in our lives. And Father, we can have confidence in it, not because that's how we were raised or because somebody told us so, but we can have confidence because you have revealed it to be so. Father, you do not ask us to trust you in blind faith, but you give us the evidence necessary As we saw in the Gospel of John, these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing, you might have eternal life. John says, examine the evidence and find life in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you've given us all the evidence that we need, and now, Father, we pray that we would take the step of faith to trust it. Father, there may be some that today when they walked in, maybe perhaps they were a skeptic as well and said, I don't know why I should trust the Bible. I don't know why it's different than any other sacred writing or any other religious text. And I pray, Lord, that some of the things that we've talked about today is has opened their mind to truth, has convicted them to study some more or research more. I pray, Lord, that they would taste and see that you are good, that you are true. And so, Father, I pray for the skeptic that's here today. Father, they would just ex- just explore the truth to its conclusion. Father, you're not pr- afraid of their questions. You're not afraid of their doubts. And I pray that they would bring them honestly to you. Father, for those of us who have claimed a biblical worldview and claimed to be Christ followers and say, we love the Bible, we, t- we trust the Bible, but we really couldn't articulate why, Father, I pray that today's been an encouragement and a challenge. Pray, Lord, that it's been a challenge to us to be able to, as you say in First Peter, to be able to defend ourselves, to be ready to defend our faith when someone asks us for the hope that we have in us. And so, Father, I pray that this has spurred some of us on to do more research, to study this more, perhaps even to come on October second and start a class on Christian apologetics to learn how I can defend my faith even more. Father, mostly I just pray that this discussion, as we open Your Word, just spurs us on to teach other people about your love and your truth. That we can claim Jesus loves us and we know it because the Bible tells us so. Lord, raise up. Raise up your church to see the world through your eyes. To see our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers who are being deceived by the things of this world, Father break our heart over that and open our mouths to have a conversation with them that leads to eternal things that leads to truth Father let us be your eyewitnesses to this generation, telling them about the great and mighty things that you have done in us, through us and for us Father, you are good and you are great. Thank you for your word. As you just continue in an attitude of prayer our our close as we always do is just a time of commitment, a time of invitation and and I wonder if if as we stand and sing a song in just a moment, if there's somebody here that you know, you walked in and said I didn't I don't think I could trust the Bible before I walked in, but you really you really made me think. I would encourage you during this time to just Ask God to help you with those questions that you have in your mind. If you want to talk to somebody about that, then I'm going to be down front. You can just come up and say, Pastor, can we, can we get together and talk about what you just shared today? If I can't do it, there's other folks in our church that will find time to spend some time with you. We'd love to. Maybe some of us have been convicted to say, you know what, I've never been able to articulate why I believe the Bible. I want to learn more and I want to commit to be in that class or I want to commit to study some more on my own. Maybe some of you just want to know, does Jesus love you or not? I'm here to tell you he does. His words proves it. I've experienced it. Maybe you just need to say, I I need this love that Jesus has. As we stand and sing, there'll be some folks down here that'll be willing to pray with you. Just talk to you about that. Maybe you just want to come and pray. Heavenly Father, you take this time of invitation. Lord, be glorified in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Let's sing. You respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. If you want to talk, if you want to pray, you come forward.